0: the magic and alchemy podcast where we talk about witchcraft setting intentions forgotten folklore and mythology created by tamed wild magic and alchemy is a collection of stories rituals and articles crafted by a variety of creators and writers including myself kate bellew and my co-host kristen listenby
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Magic and Alchemy podcast. I'm Kristen Lisenby. And
0: I'm Kate Baloo.
1: How's it going today?
0: Well, (laughs) my voice is better, at least. Listeners, I am uh, just getting over my annual winter cold. Um, Could not record last week, but thanks to fire cider and honey and tea elixirs and potions i'm here today with you Kristen. i could not be happier about it um what's going on with you how are the azores happy almost end of february question mark like is spring (laughs) gonna happen what's up
1: (laughs) um well you know first off these winter colds were not playing around this year so i'm happy you were on the mend um and yes, yeah, spring is coming, right? <laughs> right? Um, yeah, yes. That's yeah. what I Confirmed. keep telling myself. Confirmed, yes. <laughs> I mean, I just keep telling this to myself. Um, and I know listeners maybe you are too because I keep seeing everyone online doing these little spring countdowns, um which is so cute because the spring equinox is really just one month away and it feels so good to say that because looking outside my window right now the winter winds are still in full force um, I'm forever in awe of the Atlantic storms during this time of year but we're here Kate together I have a lit candle next to me a cup of tea so mm. we're just going to keep saying it spring is coming
0: yes so might it be And, you know, speaking of honey, Kristen, I'm going to talk about honey and bees later this episode, which we'll get to in a minute, speaking of honey and elixirs, but do you happen to have some bee-related news for us? Pointed question. (laughs)
1: Well, I'm excited to hear um, what you have to say about honey and bees, especially because I think I also briefly mentioned honey in today's conversation. Uh, not surprisingly, as our research so often overlaps and intersects, but Yes, I do have bee-related news. Um, so listeners, as you may know, a while back, I created a book series, Little Witch Books, alongside my illustrator partner, Caitlin Barone, um, who's been on the podcast a couple of times. And about a week ago, we launched a Kickstarter for a new book called Telling the Bees, a fairy tale for the new moon. It is a middle-grade fiction. It's really fun and whimsical. And it was inspired by the tradition of telling the bees, which I've actually written about before on the Tamed Wild blog. But this practice centers around the belief that bees are not mere insects, but divine couriers who carry our messages to and from the spirit world. Mm. I'm so excited. Yes, I'm so excited, too. And, you know, I know that for um, most of us in the modern world, having beehives on our property is not realistic. But in the past, when more people had gardens and worked the land, having bees helped to ensure our plants pollinated and our harvest was bountiful. And so people really treated their bees as family. Um, And according to the tradition of telling the bees, it was necessary to inform form your hive of important events like deaths and births and anniversaries, graduations, a new job, even your dreams. Anything that was worth celebrating or mourning would be shared with the bees. And this book has been <laughs> such a labor of love, and I'm just so happy with the way it turned out. Not only the story and illustrations, but the book itself is stunning, if I do say so myself. So find us on Kickstarter, tell your fairy tale loving friends. Um, I'll actually be on the Moon in Carolina podcast with Shelby soon, talking about this book in more detail. So make sure you head over there, listeners, if you want to hear more. Thanks for the update, Kristen.
0: Um, yeah. also, I'm so excited to listen to you and Shelby talk about all of this magic, um, mm-hmm. on the pod. Um, but this leads me to our listener question for the week. So as you know, Kristen, a bunch of folks over the years have asked us about our process for working on these episodes. So should, should we share? should we let them know
1: yes <laughs> let them in on the secrets yes <laughs> um you know and honestly i would love to hear from other podcasters like what their recipe is for creating episodes because this process truly is fluid mm-hmm. if we want it to be um but from a logistical aspect uh kate and i have a google doc Several, in fact, um, which is where all of our ideas start. And this is where we plan out the entire Magic and Alchemy season. We assign topics or themes to each episode, um, usually related to what's showing up in our inboxes, what questions are floating around uh, amongst the Tamed Wild Coven and in the DMs. And then after we've decided on a topic, Kate and I part ways we do not research these topics together. We write our pieces separately, um, following whatever threads happen to unravel as we go. And, you know, both Kate and I have extensive or some might say excessive occult libraries, um, but it's really so helpful from a researching aspect. Um, but I also think from a magical standpoint that when you put it out there, that you are doing something or that you're looking for something, the universe tends to respond. Um, And when Kate and I planned our Aphrodite episode last summer, just as an example, Aphrodite was everywhere for both of us, even though we were in different corners of the world. And then... Lastly, um, because working with witches is truly magic. When it's time for Kate and I to come together and record, we drop our research into the shared Google Doc. Uh, and I know it sounds hard to believe, but rarely do we do any tweaking. Um, even if I saw the subject one way and Kate, you viewed it through another lens. Um, I think it really just adds layers. To these conversations that would not be there if it was only one of us creating these episodes.
0: Yeah, it's exactly that, Kristen, what you said, hashtag working with witches. It's one of mm-hmm. my most favorite things. And I just love to see the synchronicities that we find and follow in this work, like like you said, there's always overlaps, but we almost never see it the same exact way or do the same exact research or reading and so it is truly a weaving or a layering or making of a web. Um right. and it works really nicely. I usually just pull a bunch of books off my shelves and, like, stare at them and all <laughs> of my books. Wait book... for them to talk back. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I'm like, which one has the thing that I need? <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, you know, JSTOR is always good. Google's always fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love this process. And and just echoing what you said, too, I would love to hear other podcasters' processes. I'm always so, so curious Um, but on that note, Kristen, what are we going to talk about
1: today? Well, today we are talking about potions. Listeners, those of you who have been with us since the beginning might remember that Kate and I talked about potions way back in season one, episode 14. We considered love potions specifically and whether they were potent, poisonous, or both. In that conversation, we also mused over enchanted apples and Aphrodite's sacred belt or harness that makes the wearer irresistible, and others go mad with lust. So, love potions gone horribly wrong was the theme of that episode, but today we are going to be musing over some other potions, their purpose, and origins. In the essay, Potions, the Witch's Apothecary, written by Michelle May for Toshin's witchcraft book, she writes, From the Latin term potio, meaning poisonous draft, these elixirs burst into European apothecaries during the Middle Ages. Originally medicinally intentioned, the makes of these tinctures and tonics used locally available herbs and flowers. But as knowledge of the plant kingdom advanced, more efficacious ingredients were added to the milder herbs. Some had sedative effects. Others were stimulating. When potions began to function fully, their makers became known as healers. Once psychoactive plants were discovered and added for further fixing, minds were altered.
0: Mm. I
1: always love an etymology setup.
0: Mm-hmm. Same. One of my most favorite potions is the potion that Cersei gives the men of the Odyssey, turning them into pigs (laughs) (laughs) because of reasons. (laughs) But all jokes aside, at their core, potions are about transformation. They are a ritual of taking into the body an intention, nourishment as a symbolic act. Today, I'm going to talk about the elixirs of milk and honey, their history with magic, as well as some practical witchcraft for how to work with these two delicious potions.
1: I can't wait to hear about that, and I'm going off to search for the goddess Mott, pomegranates, and moon potions, so wish me luck. Although the word potion has long been associated with witchcraft and sorcery, the idea of a drink that bestows magical powers and divine knowing upon the recipient can be found in many places, in nearly every religion and belief system, in literature, mythologies of old and new, and indeed in magical communities as well. And no matter which direction we decide to go, the roads are windy because potions are hard to come by. Their ingredients vary and what they offer ranges from medicinal to miraculous. In fairy tales, you'll only acquire a potion through chance or tragedy, or if you're the witch in the woods, perhaps you'll try to make it yourself. In mythical tales, people seek out potions for healing and inspiration, to feel powerful, and perhaps to taste divinity, even if only momentarily, to drink from the hearts of their gods, or in some cases, their enemies. Powerful potions drive the mythologies of Celtic Caridwin, Crone of Wales, and her adopted son, Taliesin. Same goes for the Chinese goddess Chang'e, who consumed the elixir of life and left her husband to live on the moon. Greek goddess Persephone, and her mother Demeter offered initiates of their Ellicinian mysteries a mysterious drink called a kaikion. This potion, of which the ingredients are highly debated, was said to help people see through the veil. Ellicinian initiates who completed the ritual were transformed and no longer feared death. In episode 80, psychedelic witchcraft. Kate, we talked more about the Eleusinian Mysteries, but fun fact, many well-known people and philosophers were initiates, including Plato and Cicero. Cicero said that the mysteries taught him, quote, how to live in joy and die with better hopes. And Plutarch, a priest at the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, was also an initiate. He said, we hold it firmly for an undoubted truth that our soul is incorruptible and immortal. I'll link some of our previous podcast episodes where magical brews and potions play interesting roles for anyone interested in these stories, but today I was drawn toward the idea of potions relationship to the moon and shape-shifting, a potion's ability to alchemize between poisonous brew and protective spell. Sometimes a potion even delivers justice and will only poison those who are quote unworthy or perhaps too green for this type of magical initiation. And these wonderings here, potions as sentient things, conscious spells, potions as shape-shifting moon spells, brought me to the halls of the Gorgons, a place that lately I've been visiting frequently. In the halls of the Gorgons, potions are not brewed in cauldrons, but in the hearts of monsters. Gorgon blood is definitely a potion, even if it's never referred to as such. It is treated as such. The Greek hero Perseus is famous for slaying snake-haired Medusa and delivering her head to Athena, but he also collected some Gorgon blood for her which Athena shared with Asclepius, who eventually became the god of healing and medicine. Legend says that blood from the right half of the Gorgon's body was so magical that it could bring the dead back to life, amongst other miracles. However, blood from the Gorgon's left side was fatal, and the drinker, no matter who they were, instantly died. Asclepius used the life-giving potion— the blood from the right side of Medusa's body, to bring back Hippolytus, son of hero Theseus, from the dead, as well as Glaucus, the son of King Minos. Two men responsible for the death of another monster, the mythical Minotaur. This sought-after potion brought them back from the dead, along with many other heroes, but it came at the cost of Medusa's life. And eventually, it also led to the demise of Asclepius. According to legend, once Zeus and Hades, rulers of the above and the below, realized that Asclepius had acquired the power to raise the dead from Athena and the Gorgons, the moon goddesses, they quickly established that he was meddling in a realm that he was not welcome in, the realm of the gods. And so Zeus struck the healer with his lightning bolt and killed him. And this life-giving and life-taking potion—potion of duality, some might say—is present in the stories of moon goddesses turned monsters, heroes, and also in the halls of justice. Despite the injustices she shared with others, if we remember, Athena is a warrior of justice, and although her intentions may be skewed, she does share the moon goddess's potions—Gorgon blood—with the world including the solar gods. And by doing so, she ensures that their ancient wisdom will endure, even if it means flowing through the veins of her enemies.
0: I love that Gorgon blood and Medusa is how we get Pegasus as well.
1: Um, I think we've talked
0: about this before, but the winged beast springs from her blood after she's been
1: beheaded. Yes. And, you know, I feel like we don't talk about Pegasus enough um, for how much we talk about Gorgons. Nothing would be enough. Uh, no, it's true. Um, but we do have an article about this magical creature and his birth on the Tamed Wild blog. So I'll be sure to link that in our show notes if anyone wants to read a little bit more about Pegasus. And adding another spoonful of justice into today's conversation about sacred potions, I want to talk about Mott, the Egyptian goddess of the dead. In stories, Mott was sometimes cat-headed, and variations of her name are said to mean all sorts of different things, from mother to womb, um, underworld, truth, truth being her most talked-about association. More than anything I've mentioned just now, Mott was famous for the scales upon which she weighed your soul against her feather. This is how she judged the dead. Egyptian legend says that when someone died, they visited Mott and stood atop her holy scales. If their soul was lighter than Mott's feather, they ascended to a higher plane. If their soul was heavier than Mott's feather, a less desirable afterlife awaited. This goddess's followers were expected to recite something called the negative confession in the presence of Mott to show that during their life they'd followed her rules. It reads, quote, I have not been a man of anger. I have done no evil to mankind. I have not inflicted pain. I have made none to weep. I have done violence to no man. I have not done harm unto animals. I have not robbed the poor. I have not fouled water, I have not trampled fields, I have not behaved with insolence, I have not judged hastily, I have not stirred up strife, I have not made any man to commit murder for me, I have not insisted that excessive work be done for me daily, I have not borne false witness, I have not stolen land, I have not cheated in measuring the bushel, I have allowed no man to suffer hunger. I have not increased my wealth except with such things as are my own possessions. I have not seized wrongfully the property of others. I have not taken milk from the mouths of babes. End quote. Mott's followers also partook in a sacramental drink, with 3rd century scribes writing, My inward parts have been washed in the liquor of Mott. This was believed to be a purifying beverage and we see this in the stories of other Egyptian goddesses as well, specifically ones related to the dead. According to the Women's Encyclopedia of Myths and Secrets, quote, Egyptian pharaohs became divine by drinking the blood of Isis, a soma-like ambrosia called saw. Its hieroglyphic sign was the same as that for the vulva, a yonic loop like the one on the Ankh or cross of life. Painted red, this loop symbolized the gate of heaven. Amulets buried with the dead specifically prayed to Isis to deify the deceased with her magic blood. A special amulet represented Isis's vulva and was formed of red substance, jasper, carnelian, red porcelain, red glass, or red blood. This amulet was said to carry the redeeming power of the blood of Isis. End quote. So we're back here again with the blood of our gods, blood as an ingredient in the most potent potion, blood as a sacrament for our becomings and endings. But what is blood other than a symbol for life force? Which is why mythical theorists suggest that divine blood has always been the secret ingredient in potions, if not literally, then symbolically. Going back to Greek and Roman myth one last time, Dionysus, god of wine and revelry, is known to offer his followers an intoxicating fermented brew. Now, of course, this might be wine, but others theorize it's part honey and part sacred herbs, maybe a few psychoactive plants thrown in, all blended with a secret ingredient, a few drops of the god's blood. But like the potions I've already mentioned, tasting this magical beverage was quite risky. It might make you go mad or initiate you into a new world. I also wonder if this potion might be a doorway to more sweetness or the mysteries within because according to some stories whenever he's injured blood does not seep from Dionysus's wounds but red sticky pomegranate juice does. A symbol of fertility and cycles, pleasure, and wish fulfillment. The pomegranate is associated with Persephone and Demeter, who I mentioned earlier, as well as Aphrodite or Venus, Hera, Lilith, and the High Priestess in our tarot decks. And like the potions and potion makers I mentioned today, Dionysus the Gorgons and Mott the stories of the sacred pomegranate are rooted in the underworld and mystic moon rites testing one's ability to self-initiate to ingest new wisdom and to journey into the abyss and back again.
2: Hey witches, Shelby here. I'm the Creatrix of Tamed Wild and I wanted to jump in here real quick to let you know about a new offering we've put together for you all. Born from the desire for community and a safe place to share and grow in our practices, I bring you The Coven. The Coven is an online community safe from the eyes of social media, where we can gather, share, learn, and connect. We can really be ourselves. Led by the Tame Wild team, each week members receive six new offerings, including a live check-in call, a downloadable grimoire page, an audio meditation, astrological insight, collective tarot reading and journaling and shadow work prompts. Additionally, each month members receive a PDF workbook focused on growing your spiritual practice, a tarot spread for the month and a 60 minute live gathering where we share in ceremony, ritual or education. The membership is loaded with offerings and the space that holds it is incredible. With discussion boards and a live chat feature, there's always someone there to connect with. Membership is $26 a month and you can try it free for seven days. Visit tamedwildcoven.com for more information. We're really excited about this offering and we hope to see you there. Now, back to magic and alchemy.
0: Another name for the promised land is a land of milk and honey. And we can hear echoes of this today in poetry, pop culture, apothecaries, and old stories. These two potions, honey and milk, are potions of fertility and abundance. They are elixirs of life. In the words of Daniel Dolsky from Bones and Honey, an ode to the hive. At long last, I found the honeyful hive that hides on the edges of my joylessness. When the old ghosts come creeping, and summer's dawn is a million years from this, my coldest midnight, I go to the hive to pray. I kneel at the roots of the hollow tree and commune with the buzzing gods. I weep in reverence to a shining gold future I may never see, and I curl up to sleep inside the shadows of my ancestral dreaming time. My lullaby is the queen's purr and my restful tonic is a sweet and otherworldly syrup on my tongue here. I am in awe of these times, stunned into sleep by the hidden intelligence that made this moment, that nest both me and bee right here, caught between doom and dream, full of a most heathen life. And honey is a golden nectar sometimes colloquially called an ambrosia, and this liquid makes life sweet and delicious and heals in herbal medicines. It's sticky. It binds. It holds together with this sweetness. It is a delight, a nourishing food of the gods. In the mythological past, ambrosia was the food or drink of the gods and is often depicted as a longevity or immortality potion for whoever consumes it. It was brought to the gods in Olympus by doves and served either by Hebe or by Ganymede at the heavenly feast. Ancient art sometimes shows ambrosia as distributed by the nymph named Ambrosia, a nurse of Dionysus, and this delicious potion is sometimes considered to be honey when brought to mortals. We've talked about the magic of bees in past episodes, but through the lens of honey, I wanted to talk about the Molisei, the beekeeping nymphs of Greek mythology, conceived as daughters of Zeus and the Pleiad Electra, the Melissa were born to protect the nurturing of bees, the production of honey, and take care of the bee colonies. In another version of the story, Zeus transforms the nymph Melissa into a bee to assist Asteus, the patron god of beekeeping. In this transformation, Melissa became the primordial queen bee, creating honey. The tale says that when a bee's spirit passes through the veil, their soul travels to the Elysian fields, the field of the blessed dead, becoming one of these priestesses. Certain versions of this story say that the priestesses themselves, after their existence on the earthly plane, find the way to these fields, and because of this, this realm is said to be infused with the scent of honey. According to learned religions, some cultures work with honey in embalming processes, perhaps accompanying the spirit of the body to this beautiful and sweet afterlife. They also recommend leaving offerings of honey graveside. In some Hindu texts, honey is described as one of the five sacred elixirs of immortality. For the kitchen witches out there, honey is a wonderful potion to keep on hand. Work with honey in kitchen craft and spells to bring about sweetness, fertility, or prosperity. And if you feel called to work with this potion in your practice, Corey at New World Witchery suggests honey jars. Honey jars are a good way to start with this folk magic and they write, these jars are also known as sweetening jars and can actually contain almost any kind of pure sweetener such as brown or white sugar, molasses or syrup. You can make jars for each person you want to sweeten, if you're working more elaborate spells on them, or keep one jar with lots of names in it for general sweetening. You can also make vinegar or souring jars, which is a form of hexane. I generally wait to do a souring jar until after you've tried a few sweetening ones, though. End quote. Honey makes an excellent offering for deities and goddesses like Aphrodite, but these potions are made even sweeter when added to milk. Milk also carries magic, created by more than human beings and human beings alike. Milk is life-giving and nourishing, like blood it binds us together. Folklore often talks about the milk bath, a potion created for youth and gorgeous skin for Venusian rituals. And though they said that Cleopatra herself bathed in milk and honey, this may have been Roman propaganda. Some historians believe that Roman Empress Popea, the wife of Nero, popularized this bathing fashion after Cleopatra's death, but I do like to think of this queen of the Nile as adorning herself in this way. In statues and iconography, the great divine archetypal mother holds a young child to her breast milk is our first food. If you want to work with milk in your magical practice, consider how it appears in fairy tales and myths. Some consider milk distinctly cleansing, and adding a bit to your spell as an offering can be a nod to this power. It is a potion. It is an elixir of life. Interesting literature states that in Hinduism, the universe was originally a sea of milk which the gods churn to create butter. It's worth remembering that the word galaxy originally comes from the Greek phrase galaxias kyklos, meaning milky circle, presumably because of the white light created by the stars in the night sky. Of course, our own galaxy is known by another milky term, the Milky Way. The ancient Greeks believed this galaxy was formed when Hera removed Heracles from her breast and her divine milk spilled across the heavens. So listeners, if you feel weary in winter, longing for sweetness or nourishment, connect with these elixirs of life and remember how we're all connected. Be it milk and honey, blood or the juice of sacred fruits like pomegranates, these potions will sustain you, ground you, and remind you of your inner magic in this ritual that we call birth, life, and death.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today on Magic and Alchemy, a podcast from Tamed Wild. Again, we're Kristen Lizenby and Kate Blue. You can find us online at and Alchemy and at K8 Ballew. Send us all of your questions, comments, or just say hello via email at podcast at You can view all the amazing offerings from Tamed Wild on their Instagram at tamedwild or on the blog tamedwild.com. Join us back here in two weeks
0: for another magical conversation. Just a reminder that magic and alchemy are always available to those who know where to look for it, so mote it be, or something better. Until next time.